0: By way of introduction, if you're visiting today, or if you're new here, my name is Mike Jordan, and I'm the dean of the chapel up at the college. And I'm very grateful to Pastor Wes and the rest of the pastoral staff for the chance to speak here this morning. I want to talk to you about the story of Jacob and Esau. To just start by noting that the name Jacob is more popular now than when I was born. Every year between 1999 and 2012, Jacob was the most popular boy's baby name in America. And last year it dropped to number three. Um, When I was born, it was number 50. But that's still fairly common when you think about it. Now, the government started keeping records of these things in 1880. So if you go back to 1880, the lowest Jacob has ever been is number 368. And that was in 1962. Now that may sound like it's really low, but it's always been a fairly common name. But nobody ever names their kid Esau. The last time Esau was in the top 1,000 was 1902. And I don't reckon any of you were here in 1902. The last time it was in the top 1,000. And even then it was number 964. In 1897, it cracked the top 1,000, in 1893, and in 1890, and that's it. And the highest it ever got was number 926. So nobody names their kid Esau. And it's never really approached Jacob in terms of popularity in many ways. And of course, there are very good reasons why nobody names their kid Esau. Esau is not depicted in the scripture in, shall we say, a positive way. The first glimpse we get of Esau is not terribly flattering. In Genesis 25, 25, we get a picture of him at birth. The first one to come out, that is Esau, was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau, which means hairy. I uh, was thinking about the birth of each of our kids, and uh, I... I don't know, those, those are blurs. Like, I don't know if you remember the birth of your kids. And all I can, I just have a, one snapshot that I kind of go to for each kid. And for Grace, it was when they plopped her on the scale and she screamed and fussed. And there's this picture I have of Grace. And Jack, it was seeing his head about seven minutes after we arrived at the birth center, which made me very nervous. For Lucy, it was her crying for the first hour of her life. And if you knew Jack at, When he was a little guy, he also cried and cried for the first year. And we looked at Lucy for the first hour and we thought, Oh no, here comes another kid who's going to cry all the time. But she's been pleasant ever since that hour. I don't know. And then Gabriel, I remember our fourth, just looking up at each of his siblings. Now those are the pictures I have in mind. And they're all romantic and they're all cozy and they're all sentimental. Makes me feel really bad for Isaac and Rebecca. Because Rebecca, you know, she's working to have this baby. I know what that looks like. She's working hard. It's not a pleasant sight. And she begins, you know, to say, I can see the baby's head, you know. And she says, Isaac, what's it What's it look like? And she says, he says, well, it's red. <laughs> and she says, red? Red? Is that all? And he said, well, you know that hairy garment I have hanging up in my closet? He kind of looks like that. She says, well, I'm glad I have nicer images to fall back on than Isaac and Rebecca. It's not a very flattering first picture we get of Esau. And to be fair, they didn't do him any favors by naming him Harry either. So that wasn't terribly flattering. And truth be told, it doesn't get much better from there. We read that Esau grows up and he's a skilled hunter. He's great with a bow and arrow. He's also dumb as a bow and arrow, not a smart guy. One day he comes in from the field and he's famished and he decides, you know, I right now want a bowl of that red stew more than I want my birthright as an eldest son. The one thing that Esau had going for him, he traded away for a bowl of red stew and the text calls this despising his birthright. He didn't value the things that were truly valuable and instead he just settled for a bowl of red stew. Makes you hope the stew was really good, you know. After that, we don't hear much about Esau until he turns 40. And he gets married. And he marries not one, but two Hittite women. Judith and Basimath. I guess that's how you say her name. I don't know. And the last sentence of chapter 26 describes their marriage. It says this. And they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. So we don't know what their marriage was like. There's probably a whole story there, but it made their parents miserable. So miserable, in fact, that at the end of chapter 27, when uh, Rebecca is pondering Jacob's future, she says, he better not marry one of these Hittite women. Because if he marries one of these Hittite women, my life is not worth living. I would rather die than have my son marry one of these Hittite women. That's misery, and that's all Esau's fault. I'm a Phillies fan. Have you watched the Phillies this year? They're horrible. They're unwatchable. They're terrible. And the Cubs... The cubs are always, the cubs are horrible too, you know, but the cubs, at least there's a romance about the cubs. They always lose. That's what they do. There's lovable losers. The Phillies are just losers, right? And Esau's that. Esau's just a loser. There's nothing redeeming about him. From the start, he had advantages. And from the start, he squandered his advantages for his appetites for food. And his appetite for women. No wonder nobody names their kid Esau. And the whole Jacob and Esau story comes to a head in this chapter. And Jacob famously tricks Esau. And he steals the blessing that properly belongs to him. Uh, Isaac asks Esau, he says, go prepare food that I love. You know, bring it back to me and then I'll give you your blessing. And Rebecca hears this and she doesn't want any part of that for, for Esau to inherit the blessing. And so she works with Jacob to prepare food that's like the food Esau would have made. She works to uh, make kind of an Esau costume for Jacob and dresses Esau, Jacob up as Esau and has him bring the food into Isaac. And Isaac is tricked and he thinks it's Esau giving him the food and he gives him this blessing. It's a beautiful blessing. Ah, oh, the smell of my son. Is like a field that the Lord has blessed. May the Lord give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. And it really is. It's a a lovely blessing, isn't it? I uh, had the good fortune to uh, do the wedding for Jim Lucky and his wife now. And when I was at this wedding, it was kind of a Canadian wedding, and there were all these speeches. And I was amazed at all the nice things that people were saying, all the blessings that they were pronouncing. It's the kind of thing Americans don't say except at funerals when the people are dead. All these nice things that they were saying about them. And I thought, man, if my son or daughter marries a Canadian and I get to make a speech, I want it to be that kind of speech, you know? You are blessed. May the dew of the earth, the fatness of the earth, the dew of heaven, may it be with you. It's a beautiful blessing. Then, of course, Esau comes in and Esau says, hey, I brought the food, you know, let's get to the blessing, dad. And he says, I, I didn't, uh, who was that <laughs> who was just here before? I gave someone, I thought it was you. I, whoever was here before, I gave him your blessing. And they both realize at once, Jacob, you know, that weasel, he's done it again. Now, if this were today, we'd call everybody into the room and straighten it out. And say, Jacob, you can't do that. That's not American. You can't trick people like that. Whatever, you know. But it didn't take place today. It took place then. And it was considered that the words that had been spoken were binding. You can't just take it back. So Esau knows he is up a creek without a paddle. And he cries out. And he says, bless me too. Bless me too, Father. Don't you have a blessing for me? And Isaac looks at Esau and he gives him this blessing. See, away from the fatness of the earth shall your home be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's an interesting blessing, it's very often seen as a curse. Away from the fatness of the earth, away from the dew of heaven on high, living by the sword, serving your brother. But there's a ray of hope as well. When you break loose, which presumes, of course, he will break loose, you will break the yoke from his neck or his yoke from your neck. This is not a curse. This is a blessing. When we get to Hebrews much later on uh, in the scripture, um, and the writer of Hebrews is accounting for the faith of the patriarchs, this is what he pulls out to commend Isaac's faith. He said, By faith, Isaac pronounced blessings for the future on both Jacob and Esau. This is envisioned as a blessing, it's not a curse. There's a sense in which he's telling Esau, you have your own path in life. And while you may not inherit the covenant blessings that Jacob has, you have your own blessings. You will serve your brother, yes, as all peoples must serve the God who has made his covenant with Jacob. But you will not be his slave. You are going to have your own way of relating with God and with the rest of the world, even if it's not from the privileged covenant perspective that Jacob has. It is a blessing, but as with some blessings, it's not enough in the moment. And it feels like a curse to Esau, and he's angry. He said, my dad is going to die soon, and I'm going to hold my anger just long enough for him to die, and just long enough to mourn him, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. And their mom catches wind of it, and they send Jacob away. She sends Jacob away. And for the next five chapters in the Bible, the action follows Jacob. He goes to live with his uncle, and on the way there, he has a a dream where he sees a ladder, and God renews the covenant with him. He arrives at his uncle's house. He falls in love with a girl named Rachel. He works seven years to marry her. He marries her and discovers that she's not her, actually, (laughs) and so then he has to work another seven years to marry Rachel. He starts a dysfunctional family where he has children with both wives and the wives' maids, and the wives are jealous of each other, and the children carry on the wives' jealousy. He runs away from his uncle's property where he worked. He steals some things on the way out. The uncle catches up with him. They almost have a crisis. It's just narrowly averted. So basically, after Jacob and Esau split up, Jacob's life is a mess. Jacob is, you know, you see Jacob on daytime trash talk show TV. Jacob's a mess at this point. And it's almost like the point of these five chapters is to show you that even though Jacob might have these privileges, he absolutely doesn't deserve them. There's nothing he's done to deserve it. This is, this is terrible stuff we see out of Jacob. And so five chapters later, at the beginning of chapter 32, the text tells us that to escape his uncle, he has to go through Esau's territory. And he's nervous. Because, you know, last time he saw Esau, he was ready to kill him. So he sends messengers to Esau to try to placate things. And then he splits everybody. He's got all his sons and daughters and wives and maids and animals and riches and everything. He splits them all up into two groups. And he figures maybe Esau will be so busy killing half of us that he'll let the other half live. And then he gets together a huge present for Esau. Goats and camels and donkeys and rams and ewes. And, and all of these he sends ahead of the family. And then he lines the family up, least favorite to most favorite... And just just in case Jacob gets tired or Esau gets tired of killing people and things on the way, at least he'll spare the favorite people in the back. And then at least to his credit, he does run ahead. Jacob runs ahead of them all and he runs before Esau and he bows down before him seven times. He's terrified of what's going to happen. Now look at what happens. This is in chapter 33, verse 4, if you're paying attention to that. Esau, this is a quote, Esau ran To meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. I don't know if you have your thinking caps on this morning, but that doesn't sound like Old Testament stuff to me. That sounds mostly like the prodigal son. Doesn't that sound like the story of the prodigal son? And Luke no doubt has this story in mind when he's capturing how the father reacts to the son. The, the language that, Greek use, uh, that the Greek uses for, in Luke reflects this language precisely. Luke is no doubt thinking of Esau when he's talking about how the father acts, which is actually a very provocative sermon for another time, I guess. But often in the story of the prodigal son, we think we have it all figured out. This is who the younger son represents. This is who the older son represents. But here, Esau is not acting like either son. Esau is acting like the father. Esau is the one who has been wronged. Jacob has stolen what rightfully belonged to Esau and has wasted it. Wasted it on this sort of dysfunctional life he's living. And yet when he sees him, Just like the father and the prodigal son, Esau throws off all propriety, runs to Jacob, hugs him, kisses him, weeps. And he looks around at all the stuff Jacob has brought. All the people, but all the gifts. And he says, what's all this stuff for? And Jacob says, I I brought it as a gift because, you know, I thought you wanted to kill me. (laughs) And he, he says, and this is an amazing line. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Wow. (laughs) And Jacob says, no, 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 please take it. It's a gift. And Esau says, tell you what, brother, why don't we go together? It'll be like old times, me and you. That's not actually in the text, but you know what I mean. He said, let's go together. And Jacob says, you know, I got a bunch of kids now, and you'll go faster than us, so... You just go ahead. And and Esau says, hey, if you need help with the kids, I've got 400 men here. Why don't I leave some of them with you to help with the kids and all your stuff? What a gracious response from Esau. I have enough. Enough to meet all my needs. Enough to be happy with my place in the world, even if it's not the covenant place that you have, Jacob. Enough that I don't really need anything more. Enough that I don't really want anything more. Here's the curious thing about this story. Jacob's the guy with the covenant, but his life's a total mess. Right? Decades of deceit have turned Jacob into the kind of person who can only think politically. A man who can't be satisfied with what he has. A man who sees Esau, his brother, and doesn't see his brother, doesn't even see a person, only sees an obstacle to be overcome. And the minute, though, that Esau sees Jacob, he says, my brother. Esau is the one who can see clearly what is. Jacob has the covenant, but Esau is the one with the grip on reality. You know, I've always believed that our spiritual gifts and our personalities have kind of strengths and weaknesses. That every sort of personality type and every spiritual gift sort of has a real positive side and then it has a real weakness to it. I know this like as an extrovert. There are times my extroversion is a very helpful thing. Sometimes where it's not so great to be an extrovert. And we know this with Jacob, right? Jacob is a conniving weasel, right? And sometimes that's really helpful to Jacob when he needs to get out of a jam. But sometimes it makes him this thoroughly unlikable person. But maybe the same can be said for Esau. You know, the same simplicity that made him a total rube for Jacob to run circles around intellectually and emotionally also made him able to say, you know what? I've got enough. I don't need more. I'm okay. And because of that, he can see Jacob as a brother. While the guy who's been walking with God and hearing from God and watching this ladder doesn't know which end is up. Now, What's that mean for us? Well, I think there's a few things that I want to bring, bring to our attention. One, I think Esau has a lot to teach us about listening to outsiders. It's, very, uh, it's a strange time to be a Christian. I guess it's always a strange time to be a Christian. Uh, but it's a strange time today to be a Christian. You know, It's very easy to feel as if Christianity, particularly traditional Christianity, is under attack from a hostile culture. More than ever, we feel locked into culture wars, where Christians feel one way about things like abortion and gay marriage and poverty, and, and then there's the rest of the world that feels differently about it, and, and it's easy to feel locked into a culture war, when, especially when we feel like we might be losing. We get into that culture war even more strongly. We sometimes forget, though, that the cost of a culture war is often greater than the spoils of victory in a culture war. And one of the costs is that we only can see the world as us versus them. We can only see others as a threat to us. But if you view the world that way, you, miss, or you risk missing out on the Esau's of the world. Those people who stand outside what's most comfortable to us, outside the covenant people of God, who still might have something to teach us. And if you doubt God can do that, think about all the things that God uses to teach us all the time. Isn't that one of the things we love about God? That God can take a a hymn printed on a page, squiggles and lines, and make it mean something to us. That God can take a, a, a sunrise or a sunset or a rocky mountain or a snowy meadow or a summer day and make it mean something to us. Or that God can take a sermon, frankly. I mean... Whoever thought a sermon would be useful? Like, I could take a sermon and make it mean something to us. How much more so can God take someone who bears his image, someone for whom he died, even if they haven't realized it yet, and use that person to teach us something? Please don't think I'm trying to, you know, sing kumbaya and we're all one and it doesn't matter what you believe. None of that. I'm just saying I've got a lot to learn about the world and I'm not in the business of rejecting sources of wisdom that God has put into my life. I want to be open and sensitive to what God is teaching me through each of you, even though each of you is wrong, wrong, wrong about some things, right? And I hope that you're open to what God might be teaching you through me, even though I'm wrong, wrong, wrong about some things. And just so, I want to treat each and every person as a child of God who might have something to teach me if I listen to them with respect and love. And incidentally, if you ever get to the point where you want to share something of the love of God with that person, treating them with respect and love when you meet them might be a good way (laughs) to help that conversation be fruitful. So I think Esau teaches us something about listening to outsiders. That's important. But I I think it goes deeper than that. And the second thing I want to say is I think Esau helps us learn to be outsiders. As I say, I mean, as I alluded to before, Christianity is, in a sense, losing its cultural cachet. Christians are popularly understood as being anti-science, power-hungry, greedy. A traditional Christian sexual ethic is rapidly being redefined as bigotry. We are thought of as being stuck 150 years behind the times, except for megachurches, which are understood as being stuck 30 years behind the times. Never mind the evidence to the contrary. We might know this is not true, but that's how it's perceived. And perception is reality for the rest of the world. Now, Christians often have one of two responses. One is to fight back. Traditional Christianity is not anti-science, not bigotry, we say, forgetting that nobody is really listening. <laughs> That's one. But another tack the Christians take is to say, not all Christians, not all Christians are like that. By this we mean that most Christians are close-minded, Most Christians are bigoted, mean-spirited, greedy, power-hungry, but personally, I am not. It's a very easy way to establish rapport with the culture. But it does have the unfortunate side effect of throwing the rest of the Christians in the world under the bus. I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that we would all be one, (laughs) just as he and the Father were one. Let me suggest a different answer. We don't have to say, we're not like that. And we don't have to say, not all Christians. I'll give you a different answer. And it's actually not mine, it's Esau's. I have enough. I have enough. If we are indeed losing a place of privilege in our society, we're not going to win it back by arguing. And we're not going to win it back by throwing each other under the bus. But maybe we don't have to win it back at all. Esau was not in a position of privilege... He was on the outside of the action, right? He gradually, though, learned to thrive in the position that God had put him in as an outsider. Because he had critical distance from Jacob, he proved himself healthier than Jacob was. And that kind of distance from the action is something that only an outsider has. In the same way, I think we need to make Esau's statement our own I have enough. Even if Western cultures find us out of date and out of touch, I have enough. Even if I lose a place of cultural privilege, I have enough. Even if they won't pray the Lord's Prayer at graduation, I have enough. Even if they won't put the Ten Commandments on the county state lawn, I have enough. Even if I'm not well understood, I have enough. Now, I, I realize all that might sound like a lecture. You know, just get used to being outsiders. You'll feel happier if you just accept it. And I'm not saying that so that we can all just sort of feel better about being outsiders. The reason I think it's so important is that there are a lot of outsiders who need love. So I, I don't know, I felt compelled this week just watching the news and the events that are going on in Ferguson, Missouri. I don't know if you pay attention to the news or not, but in Ferguson this week, a suburb of St. Louis, an unarmed young African-American man, Michael Brown, was shot and killed by police. Eighteen-year-old guy, ready to go to college. And most reports are that he was shot in the back with his hands raised in the air, saying, hands up, don't shoot. Now, I, I don't know how you feel when you hear reports like that. But if you're anything like me, you feel confused first. People my age... Uh, tend to be very distrustful of the media. Like we know that the news outlets are interested in building a loyal followership, so they they build a brand, and so they twist stories in order to sort of appeal to the people that will watch them so they can continue to sell advertising space. People my generation tend to be very savvy to that, so we don't really trust. We're also very aware that the people who are in the story themselves can twist the story and use the media to get their vantage point out there. So it's common for people in my generation to say, whatever, I don't know what happened. And so I probably shouldn't talk about it. I don't know. And, you know, there are times it's okay to say, I don't know. I mean, the media tells us, well, this restaurant's good and this restaurant's good and this restaurant's good. Which do you like best, Mike? I don't know. Like, I don't have to decide. That's fine. Or if Brad and Angelina are going to stay together. I don't know. I don't have to know. doesn't bother me. But, in this case, a young man is dead. And the African American community in St. Louis and around our country, which incidentally is a disproportionately Christian group of people, and a group of people who have had a huge impact on my development as a Christian and as a preacher that community is saying they can't get a fair shake in our country. They're saying they're unfairly targeted by police, that they're profiled and distrusted simply for the color of their skin. They're saying quite simply that the color of their skin makes them outsiders. And many of them are accusing white Christians like me and like many of you of being silent, of not calling a spade a spade, of not calling injustice injustice, of putting good for evil and evil for good. And when I hear that, I know it's not okay to just say, I don't know. But here's the thing I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm aware that there's a community that's hurting, a grieving mother who worked so hard to get her son through school and was about to proudly send him off to college. I'm also aware that the officer himself who did the shooting might himself be a decent person who made a terrible decision in the heat of a moment and that moment at the very least is going to make him a pariah forever. And I'm also, thanks academic community, I'm very aware of what I don't know and I want to gather facts before I say anything. It's like my grandmother Lindley is hollering in my ear, you know. (laughs) Learn the facts before you speak. So, in a sense, I don't know. But I might know better... If I were an outsider, if something about me that I understood as good and beautiful was understood as ugly and hateful by our culture at large, I might understand better what to say to outsiders. And more importantly, how to listen to outsiders. You see, this is a gospel thing. I'm not making this up. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God becomes an outsider for the sake of ministering to outsiders so that in the end, there don't have to be any outsiders. And so I think in the end, we need to look at our cultural marginalization, if that's what's happening, if we're being pushed out to the margins of respectable society, as a powerful tool in the hands of God. It pushes us outside and it helps us to love real outsiders, people who have been outside a lot longer than you and me, in a deeper, more genuine way. I hate the nagging feeling that people who understand human sexuality in the way that I do, in the way our church does, are being called bigots. I hate it. It makes me feel like I'm not at home here. It makes me feel like an outsider. But if experiencing that tiny little pain that nagging inconvenience helps me to love those who are really outsiders in our culture better, then I want to feel that pain. Then I want to feel that inconvenience. I, I guess as I was thinking through what to say, I realized maybe the reason white American evangelicals like me have felt so helpless to say anything about Ferguson and about this whenever it happens is that we just don't know what it's like to be outsiders. Maybe we're about to learn. Maybe that's a good thing. Finally, I think we need to not be afraid to be outsiders, even in our own personal lives. We often lose sight of just how much each of us is seeking personal fulfillment. We want to do the will of God, but we also want to know that we're doing the will of God and receive public approval for doing the will of God in a certain way. So we look to do things that are especially sort of godly and noteworthy. I'd love to be a beloved preacher and writer and teacher, because that would put me squarely in the center of what God is doing, and all you would know, it puts me squarely in the center of what God is doing. I'll give some testimony about my own life. When we first came to Houghton, Five years ago, most of you know that I was at home raising kids and I didn't have a job, and I wasn't sure if I was going to have a job. And I wasn't quite sure where I fit. What's funny is that when I look back at my time then and my time now, I find that I'm doing a lot of the same things. Now I have a job. Now I'm at college, and I'm working with college students, and I'm listening to people's problems. But then, I was listening to Grace and Jack bicker about their problems and helping them find a way forward. Now, in the college, I get to help create a safe space for people to encounter God and each other. Back then, I was making dinner for our family, creating a safe place for us to encounter God and each other. They were the same things. And now my work is good work. And then my work was good work. But it was so hard for me to realize at that time that gospel work And my fulfillment were not the same thing. My work then was gospel work. I was building the kingdom. My work now is gospel work. I'm building the kingdom. The only difference between the two is that then no one could see it. And it was more or less thankless. And it was harder for me to tie it into a life of personal and professional success. With Esau, I need to learn to say, I have enough. My life doesn't have to be about me. My life doesn't... uh, I don't have to prove my righteousness in a public way to do gospel work. Sometimes my life's work has been like Jacob, right in the center of the action. And sometimes my life's work has been like Esau, on the fringes of the action. But either way, I have enough. Well, as it were, enough. This has been a long sermon, I'll just close by saying this. I'm still not sure I would name a kid Esau. I'm not sure it's the best thing to stick a kid with before sending him to school. But I hope that if my kids ever know any outsiders, which of course they will, that they remember that outsiders have wisdom that insiders can miss. And I hope that if my kids ever find themselves to be outsiders, as all kids do, I hope they deal with it like Esau. I hope if my kid doesn't get the lead in the school play, I hope if my kid is not the first picked for soccer, I hope if my kid doesn't get the top scholarship in college, I hope if they don't get the job they dream of getting or the marriage they dream of getting or the body they dream of getting, I hope if they're ever an outsider, I hope they remember Esau saying, I have enough. Because as John himself reminds us, This is the kind of love that God has for us. That we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. And this is enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being our sufficiency. For being enough for us at each stage in our lives. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to me in my personal journey. At times I felt like Jacob and I've been able to see just what you're doing. And at times I felt like Esau and I felt so far outside and yet you've been there acting. We pray, God, that you, it seems to many of us that we are entering a time when we will be on the outside in some ways as Christians. Would you not waste this time in our lives? Would you make our hearts more of a heart for the outsiders by pushing us to the outside? Make us people who love those on the outside in a much deeper and more visceral way because we also are on the outside. We thank you for the love that you have for each of us. We pray that you'll help us to remember in the darkest hour that it is enough. We ask this through Christ. Amen.